0: Continue our study in Mark's Gospel, and we come to chapter 14, and we'll begin our reading at verse 41 of Mark chapter 14. So let me invite you to open with me there. we are returning to the solemn scene of Gethsemane. The time of prayer is over for Jesus. And now we find him betrayed, arrested, and forsaken. Mark 14, beginning at verse 41, I'll read to the first part of verse 53. Then he came the third time, and here he's in the garden praying. He comes to Peter, James, and John. He came the third time and said to them, "'Are you still sleeping and resting?' It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body and the young man and the young men laid hold of him and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked and they led Jesus away to the high priest Again let's ask God for his help and his blessing as we open up his word Our Father we ask that you would now come And give us help as we look into this passage so rich and so many things beyond our comprehension. As we look at our Savior, as we consider his person and his work. Lord, we pray that he would be magnified in every heart tonight. We pray that you would help us to hear rightly, to listen with faith as your word is proclaimed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's often said that hindsight is twenty-twenty. That we see clearly only in looking back on whatever situation it might be, and this is sometimes true even of life's most significant moments. In the moment. The true importance of the events that are unfolding are not seen by us. It's only when we look back that we can call that moment momentous and say, ah, that was truly significant, but I didn't see it at the time. And, you know, there's other times that we're quite aware that in the moment it is significant. Be it a happy occasion, your baptism, maybe the day of your proposal, wedding day, birth of your first child, on and on, you know that the day that you're expecting is a significant moment. Or heavy times, you have a conversation that you know that you need to have and it's going to be significant. A major surgery of a loved one or yourself, test results that you're waiting on and that doctor's appointment where you're going to hear the results of that important test. We know in the moment that what is happening is significant. Now as we come to this moment here recorded in Mark 14, it's no exaggeration to say that the record that we have just read gives us key details of the most significant moments in all of history, some of the most significant moments. All of these moments from now on to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, no doubt we can say are the most significant moments in all of history. Now in these sacred moments, what we find is that the Savior of the world is commencing here in our text, his great and final redemptive work. He is stepping into it now. And he does this, notice, with full awareness of the moment. He says, the hour has come. Verse 41, the hour has come, the appointed hour. It's here. He sees in the present with 20-20 vision. He understands. He has absolute clarity. He knows who he is. He knows why he has been sent. He knows what he must do. And he knows what he will accomplish in doing that. So here's the one sent forth by God. As we read in Galatians 4, when the fullness of the time had come. Here is this one about to accomplish the greatest imaginable work, the salvation of sinners. And he now rises and he advances to face the very hour for which he came into this world. That's what we have here. So there's something truly awesome and glorious about this moment here recorded in Mark 14. No doubt when the father was looking at Christ, Here in the garden, that he was well pleased with his beloved son, looking with perfect delight upon him. And as we look here, may we do so to the delight of our soul, looking at our Savior and to the praise of our Savior. So we see Jesus going forth calmly and resolutely and courageously to continue down the path of obedience that he has been trotting his entire life. And though for a moment there in the garden, he shrunk back in horror at what awaited him, at all that his obedience would mean for him as the sin-bearing substitute. Think of it, consider the words of a modern hymn that puts it well, summarizing what we saw in the garden over several sermons as we were looking at it. To see the king of heaven fall in anguish to his knees, the light and hope of the world now overwhelmed with grief, what nameless horrors must he see to cry out in the garden, "O oh, take this cup away from me, yet not my will, but yours. One thing is abundantly clear as we consider this scene tonight. Jesus is no unwilling victim. Jesus is not helpless and overpowered by his enemies here. He advances willingly with full possession of himself and of the situation. So what we see here is the son of man laying down his life freely giving it as a ransom for many, to set many sinners free. We see him submitting to sinners, but doing so in submission to the Father. We see him allowing lawless hands to take him and bind him and bring him before a court of men and eventually lead him to his death behold, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners, says Jesus in verse 41. That is what is happening here. The son of man betrayed into the hands of sinners. And Jesus spoke these words, and then what did he say there in verse 42? Again, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So tonight, what I want us to do is observe three things. Firstly, I want us to observe Christ's enemies who arrest him. And then Christ's friends who abandon him. And then Christ himself who for the joy set before him endures all of this. So firstly, Christ's enemies in the garden of Gethsemane. His enemies. On this night in Jerusalem, remember it's Passover time. On this night, the moon would have been full. And now whether it shone clear and bright in the night or whether it was veiled by clouds, we don't know. But on that night, the one through whom the moon was made to shine, that one has gone with 11 of his disciples into a garden to pray. And meanwhile, Judas... One of the 12, we are reminded, has gone away to gather a crowd of armed men. And having done this, leads them out of the city, out of Jerusalem, to the place where he knew Jesus would be. We read that in John. For Jesus often met there with his disciples, John 18:2. So he knows where to find Jesus, and he comes with these men who have swords and clubs, and as we look at John as well, we see that they have lanterns and they have torches along with their swords and their clubs. And with lanterns, torches, swords and clubs, they are marching out into the night. So to say the least, this would have been a most unusual and an ominous sight to see this large armed crowd going out in the night out of the city. Surely those who saw it were amazed and possibly some wanted to follow and see what was happening We see something going on, we wonder what's happening, and we might follow or take a look. And that probably happened in this circumstance for those who were awake or maybe those who were awakened by the commotion. So they make their way probably through the eastern gate of the city. And just like Jesus and his disciples, they would have gone across the Kidron Valley and they go to the western slopes of the Mount of Olives where we have a garden the place named Gethsemane, probably a grove of olive trees. And as they come near to this garden, we see that Jesus not only notices them, but he anticipates them, anticipates their arrival. He rises and he meets them. There's no doubt in his mind what is about to take place. He says, my betrayer is at hand. Here he is. So what we see first here is we're thinking about the enemies of Christ. We see preceding, leading, and guiding this armed mob is Judas Iscariot. And Jesus refers to him as my betrayer in verse 42. And then he's called the betrayer of Christ in verse 44. More literally, it's the one who is handing Jesus over. The one who is giving him up into the hands of of these sinners. He is the insider who has conspired with the enemies of Christ, providing planning and leadership and critical information to make this arrest happen, where they could find Jesus alone without a crowd around him. Notice how Mark identifies Judas He says, Judas, one of the 12, there in verse 43. And he's already been called this twice in chapter 14, back in verse 10 and in verse 20. One of the 12. It is meant to get our attention, to get us to think about it, to underscore the shocking and the atrocious nature of the treachery of Judas Iscariot. Now, we're so familiar with the story that I think it's hard for us to appreciate it when we read, here is Judas, one of the 12. But one of the 12 come to betray not just his teacher, but the Lord of glory, the Christ, the Son of God, the Prince of life. Now, Jesus is grieved by this, but we know that Jesus was not surprised. Jesus had even said that this would happen. It was just as he predicted. Remember, all the way back in verse 17. As they're there in the upper room, they're having a meal. We read, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, this is verse 18, One of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, One by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? He answered and said to them, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better or would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now, it's that man who heard those words, that man who now comes to the garden, and he has no problem finding Jesus. It's dark. It's an olive grove. If Jesus wanted to hide, he could have hidden there amongst the trees, but Jesus doesn't hide. In fact, he's actually risen to meet his betrayer, and his betrayer wastes no time in carrying out his wicked plan. Judas had given them a signal. There was this agreed-upon sign by which they could identify Jesus, and he gives them specific orders. You have that in verse 44. His betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely, or lead him away under guard is another way we could translate that. So what we see is that Judas has made very careful plans in order to make sure that Jesus is apprehended, that he is handed over. Now, the signal might seem unnecessary. You say, didn't everybody know Jesus at this time? Wasn't he well known, especially there in Jerusalem and all that has happened that week? But Judas wants there to be no uncertainty here. And also, it's dark. So perhaps it would have been hard to see, to look at faces and determine who was who. But whatever the case, the signal that he chooses, it was a customary greeting, but it is especially diabolical. One man highlights it with these words, and he says, A devilish refinement distinguishes this signal. The symbol of most intimate affection and love, the kiss, is made the signal for marking the traitor's victim for the army of his captors. And now Mark, with his usual brevity, records the betrayal and arrest in verses 45 and 46. And he simply says, as soon as he, Judas, had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him then they laid their hands on him and took him. I think it's worth noting that Mark uses a different form of the verb to kiss in verse 45. So you see when it says he kissed him, but then in verse 44, it says they'd given a signal, whomever I kiss. There's a different form of the verb. In verse 45, we have The verb phileo, prefixed, so it's kata phileo instead of phileo, and it might simply be a stylistic variation. Some people would say that. I'm inclined to think that at the very least, Mark wants us to see this. He wants to draw attention to the kiss itself. It's right after the next verse. He says, kiss, and then there's this intensified form of the verb when he says that he actually did come up to Jesus and to kiss him. So I think there's something here more than stylistic variation. Perhaps Mark is conveying that Judas was rather emphatic in this kiss so that nobody would miss it, that all would see this signal that they had agreed upon and say, this is the man to take. So he's emphatic, most likely, in giving this kiss. You think about this, that Jesus was betrayed with a kiss, that Judas could come to him and look him in the eyes, even call him rabbi, my teacher, and give him this kiss. All the while, as he's pretending to love and have this respect for Jesus, there's hatred in his heart, and his purpose is to betray him and for 30 pieces of silver. It's hard to imagine a greater act of hatred and hypocrisy. Hard to imagine a greater contrast between two persons as one man says, where did personified goodness, Jesus, And consummate wickedness, Judas, heaven and hell, where did they ever meet in more open and awful contrast? It's sobering to think of this. It's sobering to think that such wickedness proceeds out of the human heart. This is wickedness and hypocrisy proceeding from the human heart. Yes, he was overcome, filled with the devil, possessed. We read that in John. But this is the human heart. And where the human heart can get to, left alone entirely, without any grace to prevent it from getting this hard. So it's sobering to think about this. It grew on the soil, says one man, of human nature, this treachery and this hypocrisy. So here alone is proof enough of man's need of salvation that such is our heart by nature that it could be so hard that it gets to the point that the son of God would be betrayed with a kiss. So surely man needs a redeemer. Man cannot redeem and save himself. But also it's a great warning to all of mankind as we look at this of how hard the heart can become. And we ask this question, how many in this world even now betray Christ with a kiss? They show some outward love to him, or at least they want to appear to show a devotion and a love for Christ. Maybe to be at church, to sing, and to do all of the things that would appear to show that really they have a respect and a reverence for Christ, all the while there's hatred in their heart. There's rejection. There's no regard for his word. It's just outward. There's no inward reality. In a sense, is this not to betray Christ with a kiss? How many who say to Christ, Lord, Lord, will hear him say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And how many would say, I love Jesus, and yet there's no desire to follow him, to keep his commandments. So there's something very sobering here about not only human nature and our need for a savior, but for us even to consider. But consider briefly those who accompany the traitor and they're led by him to the garden to lay hands on Christ. We see this, look at verse 43. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12 with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. It's a great multitude. How many? We don't know. It's not possible. It's really not necessary for us to know. But this wasn't just a little band of soldiers who are coming. This wasn't just a few people. It was an impressive crowd. It was a detachment of troops and officers, as we read in John 18.3. Now, the exact composition of this armed crowd is debated, but quite possibly those who carried the swords were Roman soldiers. And then those carrying the clubs would have been Jewish temple guards, or we might say temple police. Now, what is clear, Mark says very plainly here, who stands behind the mob? So Judas stands before them, leading them and guiding them. But who stands behind them, having sent them? He says it is the Jewish Sanhedrin. And he gives the full designation there. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They're in verse 43. They're the ones who have sent This armed mob. And we see even that the servant of the high priest is present with them. This is the culmination of much conflict. If you've been with us in this study or even you've just read any of the Gospels, you see all of the conflict that is mounting in the life and ministry of Jesus as he's coming into contact with the religious authorities. So we've seen this again and again and again. This is the culmination of much conflict, rising opposition to Christ, even as far back as chapter 3. When Jesus dared to heal somebody on the Sabbath, and then the Pharisees begin to plot with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. That's back in chapter 3. But most recently, remember earlier, it's the same week. We call it Passion Week sometimes. Jesus has silenced his enemies who challenged him in the temple. Go back and look at that in chapter 12. It's been a little while. But you have all of these enemies coming to him, and he's silencing them. And even this exact same coalition we read, the chief priest and the scribes and the elder, we read there that they, back in chapter 12, in the temple came up to Jesus and questioned his authority. By what authority are you doing these things? Then again, this is the Sanhedrin. This is what we might call the Supreme Court of the Jews. And these are the three main power groups that made up the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and The elders. So these are the ones who are sending this armed mob against Jesus. But they weren't willing to arrest him then in the temple. They had opportunity, as Jesus will say. But they do it here at night for fear of the people. Now, enter Judas, who gave them their much desired opportunity. And I remind you back in Mark 14, in verse 10. As they're thinking about how can we betray Jesus, he's surrounded by people, he's teaching, people love him, they're hanging on his words. People are saying nobody has ever spoke like this man. They're hearing about all of his miracles and his works. So how are they going to betray him? Well, Judas, Judas Iscariot, we read, one of the 12 went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. And this is the fruit of that planning. Now we ask the question, why did they send such a great force? All of these people with with clubs and with swords. Maybe in part to send a message. As if to say, here's a dangerous man. This Jesus of Nazareth, he really is a great threat. Even one who may act violently, we better come armed with swords and with clubs. You see how that could be part of what they're getting at. But also, I think out of fear and just blind ignorance about who Jesus is. By now, it should have been clear, abundantly clear, that Jesus was not a violent man. That the kingdom that he proclaimed was no earthly kingdom. That his kingdom was not to be established and ruled by the sword. So there is a blindness here. A hardness of heart that we see again and again. And they're just going from hard to even harder. From blind to blinder. A more definitive answer, though, is given by Jesus as to why would they send this great force? Why would they do this and not do it earlier in the temple? Well, Jesus gives an answer, and it is the fulfillment of Scripture. So look again at verse 48 and 49. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? As if to say, What is this? Who who do you think I am? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. So there's our answer ultimately. This is according to the scriptures, to prophecy that must be fulfilled, that Christ would be taken in this manner. And if we ask, well, what exactly? If we're to look at Old Testament texts, well, I think at least one thing is that Christ must be numbered with the transgressors. And we read that in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, 12, that servant song, the suffering servant of the Lord. He must be numbered with the transgressors, not just as he's hanging between two criminals, but even now as they come out against him as if he were some dangerous, violent, Criminal, and he submits to it, numbered with the transgressors. So we see here Jesus' enemies who arrest him. And the whole event is summarized by our Lord in these words The Son of Man, speaking of himself, is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. He came to his own, and his own rejected him. The great lesson here. For us to meditate on is even though he was taken by lawless hands. You have Judas plotting. You have all of these other men plotting to take Jesus and put him to death. So he's taken by their lawless hands. He's treated so wickedly and shamefully. We must remember it was all part of the cup that was placed into his hands by his father, which he had determined to drink. And if we don't see that, then we won't understand what is happening here. It was all done according to the Father's will to save sinners. Betrayed by Judas, arrested by this armed mob from the Jewish Sanhedrin, but as we read in Acts 2, delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God is in control here. So let us learn to glory here in the outworking of our salvation as we look at Jesus here, betrayed and arrested in the garden. I want us, secondly, now to observe the friends of Christ Christ's friends in the garden that night. And the facts are fairly straightforward. We know that Jesus has taken the eleven with him, Judas has already been dismissed. Takes the 11 with him into the garden, and he leaves eight of them at the entrance of that garden. It was probably walled. And he takes three further into the garden. And then he goes a little further himself where he prays, and he's in agony. And now they all rise together, all 11 of them along with Jesus, to meet his betrayer and the arrest party that is following this betrayer. And that there is in verse 42 when he says, Rise, let us be going. Let us go and meet them. So following the betrayal and arrest, we read these words as we're thinking now about the friends of Christ. Look at verse 47. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John confirms for us that this bystander, it's just an unnamed bystander in Mark's account, but this bystander who drew the sword was none other than Peter. And the servant was named Malchus. And Luke adds that before this, they possibly all the disciples, at least two of them, but they had asked Jesus, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? That's in Luke twenty-two forty-nine, 49. And apparently Peter doesn't wait for an answer, but he pulls out his sword and he strikes. He strikes impulsively and foolishly aiming for this man's head. Now, The suggestion that it was a deliberate insult, and I have read that this was a deliberate insult, him cutting off the ear, to me, I don't know these things, but to me, that seems absurd as you you think about it. So in the heat of the moment, and in the dark of this night, that Peter... A fisherman by trade would be able to pull out his sword and carefully slice off the right ear of this man in front of him. I don't think so. I think he was going for his head and this man dodged the fatal blow just barely and had his ear sliced off. But Mark says no more here. He just reports that and then we have the answer of Jesus. But in the response of Jesus there in verse 48, even there... That response certainly suggests that Jesus did not approve of this violent action of Peter taking out his sword and cutting off the right ear of the high priest's servant. It would only serve, think about it, to justify in the minds of all those enemies who've come out against Christ, it would serve to justify in their minds the decision to come armed. And they would say, see, he is a dangerous man. See, we did need a mob, and we did need clubs and swords. But as we glance at the parallel accounts, they leave us with no doubt that Jesus was displeased. So Matthew, he says, put your sword in its place. Then in John, put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? He said that to Peter. So here's Peter in his impulsive zeal, he has completely misjudged the situation. Even though Jesus had clearly predicted, all the way back starting at chapter eight, Jesus had begun to teach them what must happen. Even saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and this is what is going to happen. But even with all of that, Peter misjudges the situation. Now to his credit, I do not think that we can deny that part of his motivation here is love to Christ as he's taking out his sword and he is striking. So part of his motivation surely is love for Christ, but we should also remember his ardent protest when Jesus said to them, all of you are going to stumble, Peter protested and he said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And you remember what Peter said, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So he's eager to prove his sincerity here. But we see how wrong he was, very wrong. Just as when he rebuked Jesus for telling them what must happen to him, all the suffering that he must undergo, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And you remember Peter rebuked him as if to say, far be it from you, Jesus. So here again, he's very wrong. Peter and the others have failed to see at this point the redemptive significance of what is happening at this moment. This night, as this armed group makes their way across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane, they do not see clearly like Jesus does. They cannot see that he is submitting to the Father's will. And they cannot understand at this point at least what all that means. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of further revelation. So we ought not to be at all in doubt about the redemptive significance of this moment that is recorded. And to see Christ here allowing himself without resistance even forbidding resistance, allowing himself to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And he must do this in order to drink the cup, the cup of divine wrath. So a crisis is averted. A crisis, what would the crisis have been? It would have been an all-out battle, no doubt, with swords and clubs flying, and I'm sure plenty of blood, but jesus averts this crisis by his response which mark doesn't give but the other gospels the, the other writers the other gospel writers they make it very clear that by his wisdom by his power jesus averts this crisis calms things down and amazingly he even touches this man's bloody ear and he heals him he heals him luke 2251 Then after Jesus has spoken to his enemies, there in verses 48 and 49, his friends fulfilled the prophecy that he previously uttered when he said to them that they would all be made to stumble. And then quotes from the Old Testament, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That is fulfilled. We read in so few words, then they all forsook him. And fled. They all forsook him and fled. Then, Mark, and only Mark, do we find this little interesting account that has led to all kinds of speculation, all kinds of guessing, and we have that there in verse 51 and 52. Now, a certain young man followed him, followed Jesus, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. This certain young man, and the word implies he's probably about 20 years old. He's in the prime of his life. He was evidently not one of the 11. But Mark says that he was following in company with Jesus And clearly to those who were there with the clubs and the swords, they understood this young man to be sympathetic to Jesus. And that's why they're seeking to lay hold of him. Was this maybe John Mark himself, the one who wrote the gospel of Mark? Is this his anonymous cameo in his own gospel? Many people think so, and it might be. There's other suggestions given. I'm not going to go into that. It may be that this young man was roused from his sleep. Remember, it's night and you have this this mob leaving the city. And if he wasn't in a deep sleep, he might have been woken up. I imagine they might have tried to be quiet. But if you've got all these people marching, swords and clubs and torches, it's going to wake some people up. So maybe he woke up from his sleep and he threw on this light linen garment in order to see what's going on. And he followed them all the way to the garden. And as he recognizes Jesus, he stands with Jesus in that moment. So that's possible also. But the purpose of this detail, beyond just recording the facts, may simply be to impress upon us the real danger of this situation and the great fear that overcame those who were with Jesus there in the garden. So afraid is this young man that as they begin to seize him, he wiggles away and leaves his garment and runs off naked into the night. So it's just a little detail that helps us enter in a little bit more and to see how dangerous and how frightening this circumstance would have been. And what a contrast to the calm composure of our Lord. So Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested by his hard hearted enemies, and now he's forsaken by his faint hearted friends. And he's left alone, alone in the hands of his enemies. And we're reminded the Good Shepherd, the Good Shepherd must lay down his life for his sheep alone. And surely, as we think about this, this flight of the disciples, it's blameworthy. It's something that they later would grieve and be ashamed of. They said it wouldn't happen to them, and it did happen to them. So no doubt later on they're going to look at this with shame. And we know, we know what the Lord did in their lives and how he used them later. But this is something blameworthy. They were totally unprepared for this trial. And we already knew that because in the garden when Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, they were sleeping. So they were not ready for this trial. And so they were made to stumble. And they, as one person puts it, they fall to pieces here. But I'm still thinking about this question and I I don't know, but how much are they to blame here? What else Could they have done armed resistance being forbidden by Christ? Two options, I think, really are before them. They could be bound and led away with Jesus or do what Peter did and follow at a distance as Jesus is taken away. But we saw that it would have been better for Peter not to do that. Or they could run. Those are their options. It's interesting and it's touching to look at John 18. And Jesus says this, if you seek me, let these go their way. So they didn't just flee. They did flee. And they're, they're, they're to be blamed. But Jesus says, let them go their way. There's a tenderness here, a love here, a patience here for his friends who are failing him in this trial, in this great crisis. There's a compassion. Jesus knows they can't handle it right now. Let them go, run, because if they're taken, Jesus knows their faith might fail at this point. Now surely we would have been no braver and no stronger in the garden. And we deceive ourselves if we think otherwise to say, no, I would have stood with Jesus and I would have been there perhaps maybe by his side or staying a little bit further back at a distance with Peter. But had we done that with Peter, would we have been any different than Peter? Or would we have fallen greatly as he did? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'd have to say we cannot be so confident in our own strength. Now, the truly remarkable thing as we think about this is that Jesus is laying down his life, proceeding with his determination to do so for these and many others who have failed him and will fail him. So the the friends are fleeing and Jesus isn't saying, all right, forget about it. He's saying, no, these are the ones I've come to lay my life down. That's an encouragement to us. They're failing Jesus, but Jesus isn't going to fail them. He is a friend, the truest friend of sinners, weak, stumbling, failing sinners. Jesus is the friend of sinners who lays down his life for sinners, but also will always be by our side. And this brings us back to really the focus of this passage, which is Christ himself. And so finally, we observe again Christ. We behold Christ, betrayed, arrested, and forsaken, and all of this most willingly. There's a sort of transformation that has come about in the bearing and the demeanor of Christ here. From the intense agony and the prayers in the garden, he rises ready to take that cup and to submit to the will of the Father. He rises ready to meet his betrayer. There's something about the way that he proceeds here that is amazing. You remember when the disciples are following him and he's on his way to Jerusalem and there was something about his step and it says they were amazed and they were afraid as he's going to Jerusalem. How much more here, there's something about the way he is moving forward and the work that he's come to do that's amazing and glorious and almost beyond words. Where we read there, the hour has come. Behold, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. One man says, behold, the glorious conqueror. He emerges from the horrible conflict in Gethsemane as if steeled both in body and soul. His whole bearing breeze of self-possession, manliness, and sublime composure. And we're going to see this as we go further into the passion narrative again and again. This sublime composure of Christ as he's determined to do the will of the Father. And as I said at the beginning, Jesus here is shown to us as a most willing victim not overcome and overpowered by his enemies, not helpless at all, but having full possession of himself and full possession of the circumstances here. And this fact is brought out in even greater detail in the other accounts, and most notably in John 18, where we read these words, then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, and we don't know whether this was before or after the kiss of betrayal, but he knows what's happening, and he goes forward and says to them, whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he, or simply I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. When Jesus confronts them and says to them, I am he, they are stunned, and it's not merely by his boldness, as stunning as that would have been, but something of his divine glory must have shown through here as he's speaking in the garden, And as he says those words, I am, which is a divine name. So certainly here, Jesus is claiming to be God. He says, I am, and they are knocked over. And this probably included Judas as well. And their hearts are so hard that they still are going to bind him. So we'll never begin to understand this scene if we don't see it in terms of who Jesus is, the God-man. Truly God, truly man, and what he has come to do to redeem sinners. He's the son of God who is born to die. And here, written large over the scene, is his own prayer, not what I will, but what you will. And if we seek for a good commentary on our text tonight, we can do no better than the words of Jesus himself. In John chapter 10 where he says, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. That's not what's happening here in the garden. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. John ten seventeen, and 18. Now, as we consider the Son of Man, here being betrayed into the hands of sinners, consider this, the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of the good news, the gospel of God's grace, that the Father would not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, even handed him over, into the hands of sinners, the wonder of the gospel and of the grace of God as we consider this scene here in our text, but also consider and meditate upon the glory of Christ in his perfect obedience and submission to the will of the Father, knowing fully, he's not doing this in ignorance, but he knows fully the horrors that await him as he takes that cup and as he bears our sins in our place and the wrath of God for us, but also consider the boundless love of Christ for sinners. The love of Christ is all over this passage. For his own there in the garden, you see his tenderness and his care, but for sinners, the love of Christ, which is boundless, beyond measure, beyond comprehension, as he's going forth to suffer and die for sinners and will you not come to such a savior who loves sinners so greatly who was obedient to death will you not come to him in faith and find life in him is there not something compelling just about the person of Christ as we behold him working out the salvation the eternal salvation of sinners and will you not love and adore him and praise him, and thank him, and worship him, and follow him, him who is worthy of the highest praises for all eternity. Well, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for these moments in your word, your holy and precious word, and we thank you for texts like these that show us our Savior so clearly. Lord, we thank you for Christ. Thank you for who he is and what he has done for us, for his victory, for us, for his dying, for us. Lord, we pray that we would love him even more and that there would be some here drawn to him with cords of love, that they would come in faith, resting in him alone, that they too would find life and hope and peace in him. And we pray in his name. Amen.